it's no secret that our first few episodes, especially the last one, have been uh, downers. <laughs> so I've done my best to make this one not a downer. <laughs> Thank God. Metro boobin make it boom. No, <laughs> Yo, my, you, can't just, you can't just get on the podcast acting like this, bro. <laughs> Might as well. Okay. I'm just trying to have a positive attitude, and this dude coming in with the gayest things I've ever heard. Yes, not that there's anything wrong with that. We got no, we gotta cut this. <laughs> <laughs> no, leave it all in. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Just Why, the podcast where college students examine stories from history that we initially thought wouldn't be just America, but is sadly ending up that way. I am Jacob Smith, along with John McCooch. How you doing, my man? I'm doing phenomenal. Uh, you know, I know we're about to say somebody's back, Mike's back, who wasn't here yesterday. I think it's already time to roast him. Let's not even ask how he's doing. I mean, Mike didn't show up last time, man. Uh, speaking, wait, wait, speaking of, I wrote... And I quote, and hopefully Michelangelo Ben once again after a week off, because I wasn't sure if Mike would be showing up to this one either. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing good. You see, what had happened was I'm just built peculiar, and I just couldn't appear. And what happened was that you sold us. You brought us to market and sold us. <laughs> well, if you put it that way. I do. Okay, I don't even know what that means. Well, here we examine stories from American history that expose the seedy underbelly of global history, of which we tried to thread the tread the thin line between joking and canceled. Uh, well, in this episode, we are examining the life of a specific individual who is in himself a character, but the fruits of his life are simply some of the most interesting things I've ever seen, personally. Uh, in contrast to the depressing nature of our previous episodes, this one, I believe, is... In relation to those, more lighthearted than the others. Uh, but also offers the ability for us to converse about some serious topics without delving too far deep and allowing us to get cancelled. Which I think is a good medium for us to have. I mean, it's always nice not to get cancelled, so whatever you, can, whatever you can do to make that not happen, uh, yeah, please. Please go for it, you know. Gotta do it. Yeah, like, I, I kind of want a future job, so, like, please, guys, if watching this... You know, you understand that we we might joke around, but it's just jokes. We're not really serious. It is just jokes. It is just jokes. Let's be realistic. I I don't think we've ever said anything that can get us canceled on the show. We're gonna keep it that way. All right, we're because we're we're like that. We're like that. Uh, just because we haven't done it doesn't mean we can't be afraid of it. Well, we're not afraid of it, but I'm very afraid. Well, no, we're, we're afraid. But you can't be afraid of something that won't happen. Hmm, I like that mindset. Yeah. Whatever, man. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. <clears throat> Failing spectacularly. It is an interesting idea in that one can fail so entertainingly, so monumentally at their intended task that it ends up being more interesting and memorable because of it. In the age of the internet, with meme culture and YouTube documentaries, new life has been breathed into this interest as the internet and those who view it seem to have a special interest in not just people failing, but those going against the curve to create something so horrendously beautiful that you just have to talk about it, such as we're doing now. Kind of meta. Very, very much meta. If you guys remember the old YouTube days of prank videos, it's just a prank, bro? Is it really? <laughs> I, hope, I hope it's just a prank. Mike, Mike just made this like a mystery podcast. Like, is it really a prank, bro? <laughs> what happened? Find out next on Just Why Podcast.
man cheats on wife it's just a prank bro yeah it is uh we can see this often in sports as something as the browns going 0 and 16 that one year is far more interesting than a middling seven or nine or six and ten the previous five years Lions did it first the lions did do it first you are right but the buccaneers did it before them that's true they went what was it over two seasons yeah they went like what 0 and 22 Something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, they were bad with the creamsicle jerseys that were so beautiful, but they they sucked. They were very bad at their jobs, and they're they not a good expansion team at all. Bidding for creamsicles, they did suck. Uh, God, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I, oh man, I, I I can't I can't make a Tom Brady joke because he just won. He did just he did just catch another dub right in front of all the better faces who bet the Chiefs <laughs> and watched them get washed. All right, uh. Well, sports these days have solidified the idea that it is better to be exceptionally bad than it is to be mediocre, as things such as the draft and being, having the ability to make fun of them have, have made it so that being an 8-8 being an eight eight team is honestly worse than being a 2-14 and 14 team these days. That's fair, yeah, because, I mean, the draft position is, is incredible. I mean, the, the tanking, uh, trust the process with the Philadelphia 76ers, uh, it's, it was very, very popular. It works, though. I mean, look at the Sixers now. They're having a good season. So tanking works, guys. I encourage it every single time. The Unless you draft Ben Simmons. He's not bad. What's wrong with Ben Simmons? Uh, you know, just him not being able to shoot for, like, the past seven years. Or, like, hey, but bro's averaging years. a triple-double. A lot of players do that. <laughs> I mean, uh, whatever. It's uh, early precursors such as the Jackass films to the modern YouTube videos have made it evident that people enjoy people failing than they do seeing them do semi well. Uh, do the fail army those those days? God. Those videos used to hit when I was like twelve. They, yeah, I'm. I feel you on that one. And when you mentioned Jackass, we we gotta shout this out. Steve O has been sober for like the past couple of years now. That's pretty good for him. And good on good on Steve O. I'll be honest, I don't know who he is, but congrats. Oh, He's the he, guy from Jackass. I didn't watch yeah. Jackass. I didn't watch either, but I know it. That's impressive. <laughs> I know of it. All right. <clears throat> this proves that a climax of some kind can be achieved both positively and negatively. Pause. And perhaps <laughs> You just, yeah, where did that come from, bro? Bro, I said climax. I made you boom. I mean, did okay. your woman make you boom? <laughs> anyway, anyway, Cooch is leaving. Anyway, this this proves that climax can be achieved both positively and negatively. And perhaps is this nowhere more true than in film? Do you guys know of any uh, spectac- spectacularly bad movies? Ooh, the room. But the room is so yeah. bad that it's good. I don't know if you've seen the room. I just I had to watch the room for a class. It's wow. That's it's it's art. How bad that film is. But there's also a lot of bad film. I feel like if you went to like independent films, you'd find something really bad. You'd also find some good stuff, but a lot of really bad stuff. But I got the room. The room is Tommy Wiseau. Man, that thing is awful. Bro, in my I think it was like music class. For some reason, we watched this movie. It was called Strange Things About the Johnsons. And I know that. Yeah, was terrible, and just the plot was what the fuck. Yeah, but I feel like that's the point of that. It's shock value, and that's kind of that's kind of the point of it. But like, films that we're talking about are like 
bad, not intentionally. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, because uh, a lot of these films, the reason that we watch them again is like it's intentionally awful. It's intentionally bad. And that's like art in a way, if that makes sense. And people are drawn to that. But sometimes I I'm assuming what we're going to talk about is something that's just, that's just plain awful for no, like unintentionally awful. Well, the thing is, is that if something falls into that kind of category where it's seen as by some as spectacularly bad, there's often a complete opposite view of it by a good amount of people where it's like it's like a sort of hidden genius if you think about it because it, it's like it's like in those movies where a character fails a test intentionally and gets every answer wrong but you know they know every answer because they you need to know every answer in order to get every answer wrong here's the thing is it more impressive to lose every game or win every game, bringing it back to football. Like it's it. They're both both are her, like very impressive feats when you really think about it. Well, I yeah. think historically winning, just because it's only been done like once or twice. Dolphins, Patriots minus the Super Bowl. Well, I think it's also it's. I lost my train of thought. No, it's. I think it's harder to make uh like a grant like a not a Grammy, you know, win an Oscar in a movie. And make one of the best movies than it is to have an awful movie. Always the better option is always harder. It's harder to win. It's harder to make something better. It's a lot easier to make something that's so awful that people find it funny in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah, because like a lot of times opinions on movies are just opinions. Like what you see like Rotten Tomatoes, those are just critics' own view of it. But if a movie is just historically bad and everyone could come together to agree on that, you you created the the best thing ever actually yeah i agree but also in the things where it's like when something is so spectacularly amazing it's so easy to find the fault in it like consider i uh, we're talking so much about sports right now because it's so easy to relate but consider the chiefs these year like their only regular se regular season loss was to the raiders so like it's it comes from the most unexpected places and i feel like it's just so much harder to maintain that kind of winning uh tradition could you look like you want to say something i mean yeah no no i was just moving around but yeah that's fair it's again i i was like i'm i agree with you it's harder to win than it is to lose uh especially in sports and anything but it's also would you rather go back and look at an undefeated patriots team or would you rather go back and look at a oh and 16 lions team what is more entertaining it depends. I mean, I, I would rather go back and figure out how how wrong, like what, how how do you possibly lose every single game? How do you possibly make a movie so bad? You know what I mean? And yeah. I think it also depends on how cynical of a person you are. Well, I feel like if you're, out. yeah, I feel like if you're a very cynical person, then you're probably gonna enjoy the 0 and 16 Lions more because it's yeah. just like you're bathing in someone else's disaster <laughs> at that point. But uh, we, we spent too much time on these analogies, so we got we to gotta get moving. <laughs> we gotta go, we gotta go. All, All right. right. Well, often when sitting down and looking for something to watch, you, your family, your friends, or whatever group you happen to find yourselves with that day, one of the most commonly settled upon mediums to enjoy is often a movie of some kind. Uh, movies have been a, a part of our cultural mindset since their explosion in the early 20th century, evolving from simple spinning penny shows to grand multi-million dollar exhibitions. In order to acquire such multi-million dollar deals, films often strive to reach greatness, acquiring the best writers, directors, actors, and even producers to produce some of the most highly sought-after storytelling possible. Some films achieve this gloriously, while others, with visions 
that were initially set in the stars, let's just say did not. Some of these films simply failed to garner any interest at all and simply fall into the realm of obscurity and never see the light of day again, which I think we've asserted now is arguably worse. Uh, but some films managed to, managed to fail so spectacularly that they garner interest often completely opposite from what the intended audience was and take on a new life as what is known as a Z movie. Uh, I'm sure you guys are familiar with B movies. B movies are like the kind of films where it's like low budget, kind of like off the wall, you know, not really intended to be, not really intended to go toe to toe with the AAA productions. But a Z movie, the Z movie is all the way down in the dregs. Oh, no. I got, yeah. I feel like I would rather watch a Z movie than a B movie. I'm not gonna lie. Again, I, you're gonna you're gonna say I'm cynical again. But I mean, also when you said B movie, I thought you were about to tell me about the B movie for like five <laughs> minutes, and I was really confused. But yeah, the it, there's it's like the B movie is that nice happy medium, not the actual, not the one with you know uh, Seinfeld, but uh, <laughs> the Z movies are just hilarious to watch at times. I agree. It- this brings up a good question. What are Z movies? Because this is the first time I'm hearing this. Well, it's, it's 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 kind of it's kind of like a uh, it's kind of like a film critic word, where it's like this movie is. I would say the room is one of them. Like the room had like a budget, yeah, a considerable budget compared to some other independent films or small production studio films. So I feel like Z movies had some sort of backing in the first place because B-movies typically don't. But the Z-movie failed even in spite of that. In spite of a budget or a budget direction. Some, something fucks it up so bad that it's in unsalvageable and it's incomprehensibly bad. And I feel like it doesn't even... It, some of these movies aren't even, like, budget-based. Z-movies can be anywhere from multi-million dollar productions... To like home camcorder productions. It's yeah, it's it's just anything. I think the room is. If you want to really just have an example and something that you can think of, the room. Even if you haven't seen it, a lot of people kind of get the premise of what it is and what it was. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the example I would use of one of those movies. Yeah, I think that's probably the best example without revealing what we're talking about today that I can think of. I'm not the most versed person on movies. I've watched a lot of movies. Uh, not a lot of them resonate, though. So, Fair. not the most like avid watcher, I would say. All right. Uh, well, some people have dedicated their interests and even their platforms to the appreciation of specifically Z movies, ones that are so comically bad, corny, cheesy, surreal, or unfollowable that their watchability has increased dramatically. It's the kind of film where you watch, like, on some kind of drug, I imagine. It's like, it's like staring at, like, uh, like a kaleidoscope when you're on acid. Like, you have no idea what's going on, but you're enjoying it. <laughs> Can't relate, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, I, I feel like that's what people who watch those movies, it's kind of like an event. You get together, you do some things, and uh, you enjoy this movie, if you want to call it that. And I, I just realized um, that a lot of horror movies could be considered Z-level movies. Yeah, I feel like horror is often the genre that fails the most, I would say. But I feel like it's also the genre that succeeds the most. 
it's like the riskiest genre to take on because it's really hard to scare someone and if you can't do that then your movie is automatically terrible like even if every other aspect of the movie is good you've failed as a horror movie so at that point it's just bad what about those comedy horror movies that aren't really horror that don't really scare you but they're kind of like I feel like scary, some of the scary movie movies. I don't know if they're considered really Z movies, but they're just a play, a parody of horror movies. They're not meant to scare you, but they're still horror. If that makes sense. I don't think Z. I don't think scary movie counts because scary movies, the scary movies are parodies. Yeah. So they were intentionally like making fun of other things, and like the first couple were good, but the going later into the series, I think they just fell off uh, personally to me. But I, I don't think they can be considered Z-movie because they're not unironically bad, you know? Fair. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty funny. I, I think, like, just because that aspect that they're parody, they can't really be Z-level because they're just making fun of. Oh, to imagine it. Think of scary movie, but unironic scary movie. <laughs> if those, those movies exist, and uh, that's basically what we're talking about. That, that was kind of an easier way to explain it. Yeah, just in terms of quality, I would say. All right, well, written in 1980 by brothers Michael and Harry Medved, the Golden Turkey Awards has become a hallmark point of literature in the analysis and appreciation, or depreciation, depending on how you look at it, of such films that we like to call Z-movies. Throughout the book, the Medveds give awards to such films throughout history under several dubious categories. Some of the highlights follow. The worst title award was given to the film Rat Fink Boo which is a 1966 superhero parody movie. Let me, let me spell that out for you. Rat, R-A-T, Fink, P-F-I-N-K, A, Boo-Boo. <laughs> That's such a shitty title, dog. That's so bad. I have a question. Uh-huh. What, what was this movie about? All right, well, let me tell you. Uh, it, is a, it is supposed to be a parody movie. It's a superhero parody movie. It's kind of like just the classic superhero and sidekick save the girl kind of shtick. Rat Fink is the superhero and his sidekick is Boo Boo. <laughs> when was this movie made? Uh, nineteen sixty six. Oh my gosh! So oh, I not only... uh, uh, the original title was supposed to be Rat Fink and Boo Boo, uh, the superhero and sidekick of the film. But according to legend, the title artist accidentally replaced the and with an a. And the film's director, Ray Dennis Steckler, refused to fork over the $50 to change it, so the name stuck. Although, Steckler disputes this and claims it was his young daughter mispronouncing it that made him change it. But still, why would you change it at all? <laughs> I don't know. Here's the thing. We're, we're talking about it. We're laughing at it because the title is so egregious. It won that award. So honestly, that was the best thing that could ever happen to them with that movie. Yeah, I mean, don't judge a book by its cover, but if that's your book's cover, <laughs> I gotta look at it. Absolutely. It gets my attention every time. Absolutely. Uh, the book lists the film uh, The Swarm, a movie about a killer bee infestation in Texas as one of the greatest big-budget flops of all time. With a budget production of $11.5 million in 1973, but only garnering $7.7 million rentals included. Oh, so, so after theatrical release and rentals, <laughs> that's a flop. That's a flop. Uh, it currently holds a ten percent on Rotten Tomatoes as of the writing of this podcast. 
According to some of the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, quote, a number of journalists were rolling in their aisles with laughter and were ejected from the press screening. <laughs> Watch this thing now. Yeah, bro. This, this is kind of intriguing now. If you got the whole the, the whole crit- critics, right? Like, you know, these are Hollywood people that take their shit seriously. If you got them laughing, then you're doing something well. Right, but that's not their intention. It's a disaster film. It's not supposed to be funny. It's I didn't I didn't read into this one because that's not what the this story's about. But I imagine it was just the acting, the the camera work. Something was just so egregiously bad that everyone was rolling in their seats. Where it's like if you're there, because this was like a production screening, from what the uh the quote says. If you're there as part of the movie, you just got to feel terrible. <laughs> it's like the people in the aisles are like, man, if I saw the guy who made this, I'd laugh in his face. Wait a second. There he is. Man, oh my god. At, at that point, I just turned that shit into a comedy movie and be like, no, no, it was purposely meant to be bad and just run. All right. And then I go, uh huh. <laughs> right. Of course it was. 11.5 million for this comedy movie. It's called a documentary, and, it, and the bio says this is a serious documentary about this killer beast situation we have. Imagine being like someone who has your name associated with that film, like an actor. No one's hired. You're you're done. You're not getting any more jobs if you're an actor. It's like, what movies were you in? I was in the Killer Bee movie. Oh, uh, yeah. Have a nice day. You want to work? Uh, you want to? You can you can give me sandwiches or something. And the crew. I mean, but you are not acting in my film. <laughs> I'm a good actor. Look. Oh. <laughs> Or here's my what? Here's my reel. It's the B movie. <laughs> I'm a big fan of. I'm a yeah. I, I I think that's the point though. That's what the that's what a Z movie is. You want to watch it after describing how people reacted to it. Um, the film placed as runner up to the worst film of all time by the Bad Bad Brothers, uh, Exorcist Two: The Heretic, is the sequel to what is ironically considered one of the greatest films of all time, The Exorcist. Uh, as expected for a film appearing here, it was nothing short of a disaster. The film was struck with several itch- issues, such as the director John Borman contract- contracting San Joaquin Valley Fever, stars Kitty Wynn and Louise Fletcher contracting gallbladder infections, the original film editor quitting mid-production because the movie was so bad, and, most likely due to the terribleness of the film, several hundred locusts that were shipped in for a locust swarm scene died during production <laughs> it, they it, i read <laughs> that they shifted somewhere between like two and three thousand and about a hundred were dying every day because they took them so far outside of their natural habitat like you're just rolling in his seat right now that he can't that they were just dying it was it was that bad <laughs> i i have a feeling that they definitely put at the end of the film, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. It, ha- it has to be there. There's no way that they didn't put that. That's how do you how do you not think that? How does that not? Yeah, like I, I I don't get it. That's awesome. That not it's not awesome for the locusts, but like wow, that's <laughs> that's beautiful. That that reminds me so much of the crow. If the crow was a shitty movie, I never watched that. Well, like basically. All right, the the best way to describe the crow, do you know Bruce Lee's son? Oh, now yeah, now I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's the movie he died in, right? Yep. Yeah, he got shot. 
with uh, what was supposed to be a blank gun, but it was a real gun. <laughs> I don't know how you messed that up. Uh, well, was it intentional? That's a different podcast, not this one. Yeah, it's a whole different podcast. Uh, the following is a direct quote, uh, quote from William Friedkin, the director of the original Exorcist. Quote, I was at Technicolor and a guy said, we just finished a print of Exorcist 2. Do you want to have a look at it? And I looked at half an hour of it and I thought it was as bad as seeing a traffic accident in the street. It was horrible. It's just a stupid mess made by a dumb guy, John Borman, by name. Someone who should be nameless, but in this case should be named. Scurrilous. A horrible picture. It's like, oh my god. That, and mind you, that's the original director of The, of the Exorcist. And from what, what I've read, uh, Borman was denounced not only by Friedkin, but also The Exorcist's original author, uh, William Peter Blatty. So, so really knocked it out of the park with that one. Like you have, I think that guy who made the movie Exorcist Two is like, yeah, I'm gonna take this, you know, franchise, it's all this history, and I'm gonna make a movie out of it. And then everybody that you know that you made this franchise, like the author, the writers for the movie and the book or whatever, they all go up to you and you say, "You suck." That was the worst thing I ever watched with our work. I mean, that's just gotta be the most demoralizing thing that's ever happened. But. I mean that. I didn't. I'll be honest. I didn't know there was a second movie. That's how. I never knew that there was a second. Probably movie. better than you didn't. It's. It is. It is. Oh my gosh! And we already. You already know about the impact the first Exorcist had. Yeah, it changed the whole horror film industry. Everyone was going for, like, Poltergeist followed that. Some other like, uh, possession films. I'm sure followed a lot of worse ones. I imagine. Considering Exorcist was the one that made it, but. Yeah, it definitely changed the whole movie industry in general. Um, but the person we will follow throughout this episode not only took home the Golden Turkey honor for worst director, but also worst film of all time. Uh, he is, in short, an excellent example of how something can be so bad that it ends up being good and extremely well liked. How are you guys feeling right now? How do you? I how do you? Her. How bad do you think this movie was? I feel like I feel like it's somehow going to be related to Tommy Wiseau. It's too. It's too early. It's too early for Tommy Wiseau. Okay. Okay. I feel like this is well. This is uh, if you listen to the last episode, it's a very nice change of tune. Uh, <laughs> I can finally laugh for once. Uh, but I think that this is going to be awful. I considering the movies you already told me about, told us about it. This is going to suck. This is going to be so bad. It's it's awesome. I I'm I'm ready. Give it to me. All right. Uh well, let's get it going. Edward Wood Jr. was born in Poughkeepsie, New York on October 10th, 1924. His parents were a mailman and a jewelry buyer. Uh his child was altogether unremarkable outside of a few tidbits that will come into play later on. On his 11th birthday, he was gifted a movie camera, and from that point his life was changed forever. He idolized the stars of the 30s movies, in particular Bela Lugosi, who played the titular character Dracula in 1931. Uh, also during his childhood, Wood developed a habit of dressing in drag and cross-dressing. It is speculated that his mother had either forced him to do it as a punishment, or wanted a daughter instead of a son, so she forced him to dress, force him into dresses and the like. Uh, nevertheless, the reason Ed maintained that habit throughout the rest of his life, and a major theme of many of his films would be the fetishization of femininity. In particular, the clothes, hair, jewelry, makeup, and the like. 
Ed described in a later film that he enjoyed the feathers, fur, and fluff. So I imagined here that his uh, his female characters were the picturesque ballroom broad type, where you got like the extravagant scarves and the gloves that were pink and white and stuff like that, like off the kind of like ballroom kind of woman you see in early films. That's the kind of like woman he was aiming for, and often dressed as the real life Cinderella kind of type outfit you've got going on. Yeah, okay, I I, I get I, you got the picture. I, I feel like I get the whole eccentric vibe from him, and I feel like if he was born, maybe just like, ah, ah man, in the, maybe around the 80s, I felt like he would definitely fit in perfectly with the style, the era of like, what was, what's that what's that word? It's not, it, it, of, of, you know, the eccentric era of cross-dressing, of music just changing, people's ideas just changing. I get that. Maybe in, like, the 60s with, like, free love and all that. I think it would be a little more accepted. Um, maybe maybe even modern days it would be a lot more accepted than it was in the 40s and 50s, as we'll come to see. Uh, but, yeah, it definitely became a major part of his personality. Uh, let's see, where was I? At the age of 17, Ed joined the Marines in 1942, just on the heels of the U.S.'s entrance into World War II and the bombing of Pearl Harbor. He claimed that he saw prolific combat action, including having his teeth knocked out by a Japanese soldier. Uh, his military records reveal, however, that he was sidelined with infection early into his military stint, and his teeth were removed by a Navy dentist. Uh, now, the main body of information on Edward here comes from the blog post of Joe Blevins of the Dead to Rights blog in his Edward Wednesday series. Uh, link on our sources website, I imagine. And it is noted here that it is often difficult to decipher what is true and false about Wood from what he actually says about himself, as according to his one of his later wives, he was a, quote, consummate bullshitter. <laughs> so maybe not always telling the truth. Uh, among other things, he also claimed that he toured with a freak show for some time as a half man, half woman. Uh, another callback to his transvestitism. But this is also unsubstantiated. So yeah, not the most trustworthy individual. Still eccentric, I imagine. But not everything he says is up to snuff. Let's just say that. Uh, upon release from the military in 1946, Wood's childhood passion for film remained. And sometime in the late 40s, with no connections whatsoever, he moved himself out west to California town to start his Hollywood career. You know, he's just a boy with a dream. <laughs> Just trying to make it, man. Just trying to make it in Hollywood. I'm assuming he's going to absolutely flop. Well, you'd be surprised. Uh, let the man live a little. Well, I'm know? letting him live. I mean, just based on the... I mean, you know, this is going to be a movie that is awful. But it'll make, like, millions of dollars on it. His life story so far kind of sounds like it could be its own movie. Uh, it is, but we'll get to that. Hey. Uh, he started out as a stage actor. What? <laughs> Spoiler, okay. It's not going to matter. Uh, he started out... His, the movie is a biography of his life, which I'm telling you now. Oh, so this is the movie. Don't watch the movie. Watch this. Come on now. No, that's not the movie either. It's just a movie. Starring Johnny Depp. Okay. Uh, he started out as a stage actor, and within the year he was there, he made a few connections he needed in order to kickstart his filmmaking career. It is noted that 
despite his early forays into filmmaking, he still made the most money as a stage actor and continued to do so for a while up until his first feature films, which will come in about a decade. Uh, his early films were honestly not special. His first film was a western that fell short with its archaic production and incoherent plot named Crossroads at Laredo in 1948. Uh, he also produced some short ad slots that suffered from some of the stiffest, unrealistic acting I've ever seen. In one ad, a man is presenting his nearly wed fiance with his car as her wedding gift. But the writing here is god-awful, and it goes as follows. Oh, darling, a new car. Husband, just as good as new. It's a beautiful used car. <laughs> wow. It's like, actually funny. It's funny. That's the thing. It's like, you've got to throw the used in there. That's what the ad's for. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so was, okay. Were the, was this intentional comedy? Or was it just such bad writing that it was funny? Well, I honestly couldn't tell you, because that's the genius of Edward Wood. Oh, that you God. don't know. <laughs> I love this guy already. All right. Uh, he made a short film titled The Sun is Setting with Phyllis Coates in a supporting role, who would go on later to play Lois Lane in The Adventures of Superman. The plot revolved around a woman, June, who is stuck in her apartment with an infection that is going to kill her. She wants to go party with her boyfriend, Paul, but he refuses because she's dying and that would kill her. Kind of similar to these days. <laughs> predicted, he predicted it. He's Nostradamus. He did it. Uh, yeah, so Paul refuses because uh, she's dying and, and that sort of excitement would kill her. Uh, then her friend, played by Coates, brings her to dinner, but also refuses to take her partying for similar reasons. Uh, and then, incoherently, Paul comes back, has a change of heart, and they go to leave for a party anyway. But she dies in his arms before they get out of the house. And the story ends. Uh, 13 minutes long. <laughs> that's the whole thing. Wait, that's it. That's I had it. to double take it. It's what? 13 minutes long. That's it. <laughs> what? Huh? Wait, when you said the plot, I literally had to double take to my com- looking at my computer. I was like, wait, what? Yeah, it's over. That, that's, I watched it. That's it. <laughs> It's 13 minutes long. Literally a Spongebob episode. I'm so sad. A deeper plot than this guy who is a filmmaker. Uh, was, did he explain that there was some kind of deeper meaning for it all? or No? I didn't read anything. Uh, the, from Blevins' blog, I think he said it's kind of stiff and claustrophobic. Probably because it's 13 minutes long. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> that's that's the sun is setting uh he also dipped his toes into tv production he produced a pilot called crossroads avenger another western about the tucson kid who worked for an insurance company and settles claims quote with his gun <laughs> which honestly sounds amazing <laughs> home Morado, pilgrim bang Bro, you got you got motherfucking stay farm fighting geico and, th- and this man's like boom 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 and you're like, oh, this this sounds like quality content. Yeah, I honestly would have watched that. I just, it's an insurance claimant. And he's going around shooting people. <laughs> like, I read the synopsis of the pilot, and it's like, he's about to get hanged for some reason. I don't remember exactly. But then he saves himself, 
and he shoots someone. It's crazy. This is this is insurance in the old west. A lot of gunfight. Uh, uh, within this film, we can see another theme of Wood's early films, which is getting past their prime actors into titular roles. In this case, Tom Keene, a famous we- western actor whose best films were behind him. But uh, as we'll see to come, these kinds of people would come to work for, for Wood several more times in several different roles and films. How many crazy. films does this guy make? He oh. somehow made uh, that film. Oh, no. he, he makes a lot of films. Not all of them mainstream, not all of them feature films, but he's made a lot of stuff. And it'll take a lot <laughs> to cover. Let's go. All right. By the flop of Crossroads Avenger, uh, Wood is almost 30 and has seen little or no success in the movie industry. Under his belt, he has two failed production companies uh, and a couple of fledgling products that never got off the ground. Uh, but his charisma and cross-dressing habits, however, kept him active in Hollywood social circles. And this combination of smoozing, networking, and charismatic personality netted him a partnership with an underground film extraordinaire, George Weiss, of which he would collab with on his first major feature film. But first, before we get to that, a little backstory. In 1952, Christine Jorgensen made headlines as one of the first outwardly transgender people in the American media. She was born a man, and following a stint in military service, she grew increasingly distressed in, uh, she disliked male clothes, she disliked her male form, she disliked everything about it. So she began researching more into sex reassignment surgery and hormone uh, therapy. Uh, She began taking estrogen, as most women at the time could only do that in America. America would take a while before they got the actual physical sex reassignment surgeries available to them, as it was still seen as faux pas back then. Uh, But in Europe, these kind of things were becoming established. Uh, And that's where she decided to look. Uh, she traveled to Denmark, where she went under hormone replacement therapy. Uh, and at uh, approval from the Danish government, she received both an orchiectomy and a penectomy, which is the removal of the testicles and penis, respectively. Uh, and eventually got, got a vaginoplasty to replace it once that uh, surgery became available in the States. She returned from Denmark on a plane that also carried the Danish royal family, but at that point, Jorgensen was so famous that the Danish royal family was completely ignored in favor of her. Uh, on, her on her return, Jorgensen wished for a quiet life upon return to the States, but the only way she could make a living was through public appearances, as everyone was talking about this. All the news outlets. Uh, public reaction ranged from spectacle to degrading, as most people, although not all of them... Uh, disparagingly, displayed a severe lack of knowledge about sexuality of the time, as I think we could have expected. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Uh, people don't know. People are very, still very confused about it today. Don't understand it today. So it can only you can only imagine what it was like back then. Uh, they mm-hmm. it was probably just something they'd never even heard about before, let alone seen with their own eyes. So it had to be very. It had to be a lot. It took a lot of guts to probably come back to the states and come back and live your life like that as well. It's a lot of respect to her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of the news surrounding her was just like tabloid, like, like a lot of it was speculation and conspiracy theories, and she was not treated well. 
uh, her fiance at the time, I believe his name was Harry Knox, he was released from his job as a news reporter in Washington because of his relationship to her. So yeah, not treated well, but I think we could have imagined that from 50s America. Uh, Tabloid-like conspiracies arose about Jorgensen, such as that she could now reproduce due to her surgeries and was literally being fed eggs. Oh my gosh, what? Like, she was having ovaries, ovary eggs put into her. <laughs> oh, I got that, I got that. Uh, wow, that's, yeah, that, that goes to show the uh, lack of knowledge that you've mentioned. Wow, that's, that's something. Yeah, just in case you weren't aware, if you get sex reassignment surgery, you are not able to give birth if you are going from man to woman. Right. Uh, Jorgensen published an autobiography in the late 60s that came with a movie adaptation a few years later. Uh, she lost her battle to lung cancer in 1989, but along the way established herself as a pioneer of the sexual revolution in the United States and helped to set up the era of free love in the 1960s. What a queen. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know anything about her up until this point. It's kind of like, a. it's kind of like, a. Jenner. That's like, the first she was Jenner of her times. Yeah. I think, I think more people should know about that. More people should know about her. Yeah. I think that's something we should like kind of uh as a society tell this story. It's good that we're doing this right now. Yeah, unfortunately this is the kind of thing that gets glossed over in school history. I don't think it's I don't think people view it as that important. I don't think sexuality is discussed that much in terms of like American history in schools. Yeah. Let alone sexuality at all in schools. So And it's ironic too, because like I guarantee a lot of those like higher ups that let's say let go of her husband's job. I guarantee some of them were closeted because like, especially back then, since the whole stigma against, you know, sexuality, people weren't open to it. But in deep down, a lot of them, you know, were felt yep. certain ways. Yep. That's probably what happens. A lot of people that exhibit anti-gay, anti-lesbian tendencies often end up having closeted tendencies themselves and are just refusing to confront it and take that out on others who are proudly displaying that and it's unfortunate but this is the 50s and 60s which a lot of things come unfortunately yeah um upon the return of jorgensen media outlets around the country were clamoring for a chance of making a film of jorgensen's story including george weiss himself but jorgensen was adamant that she wouldn't tell sell her story especially to a penny filmmaker such as weiss so instead Weiss partnered with Wood to make a film to capitalize on the newly found buzz. Wood, however, didn't see it that way. Wood saw this film as the opportunity to tell his own story, as his experiences with cross-dressing and the transvestite community had helped to form his personality to that point, and the Jorgensen story had only served to be a marker of the larger lack of education and understanding on cross-dressing, transgenderism, and transvestitism across the country at the time. Oh, I, I, do you guys know um when did Stonewall happen? Because I actually I actually forgot. When what happened? Stonewall, the incident in Stonewall. Inn. I don't know what you're saying. The the incident at Stonewall in, in New York City. No, I don't know. Big, I don't know uh, what that is. It's it's um it was a time in U.S. history where um, I I think the police were trying to arrest these people in this gay bar and um they decided to like fight for themselves and they started the whole cultural revolution behind it. Yeah, it was in Greenwich Village in New York. It was June 28th, 1969. Just looked at it. 1969. Okay. Yeah, the 60s were, late 60s were time. A couple decades after this. 
Yeah, the sixties were where a lot of this kind of stuff happened with the, the civil rights movement and everything. And this was that was another that was another major historical event part of that. Yeah. Damn. All right. Well, while Weiss served to make a quick buck on the backs of recent American scandals, Wood used the film as an exploration of his own issues with cross-dressing. And such uh, such production will be examining today. Uh, working and alternative titles for the project included Behind Locked Doors, Transvestite, that's it, He or She, question mark, I Changed My Sex, and I Led to Lives, <laughs> which has his head in his hands. Yeah, He or She, question mark, that's a bit questionable. Yeah, that, very, that would be very insensitive. I mean, they all kind of are, but I mean, wow. That one, that one's just, it, it, I, I don't think I can think of one that's worse, really. But that's, that, 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 yeah. Uh, those are some very. He he needs someone else that uh can you know maybe yeah, give some the, better titles. The only, doors is fine. That, yeah. That's a, that's not a bad one. I think the the two lives one is pretty interesting though, especially yeah. for the time. Yeah. Um. But I think as we come to see, Weiss was kind of holding the reins on this one with Wood throwing his input in and having a little sporadic control of some parts of the film. But this is definitely more of a Weiss production than it is a Wood production, but it's an important early film involving him. So we got to examine that. Let's do it. Uh, by the end of production, the final title was settled on. Uh, Glenn or Glenda? Question mark. <laughs> Released in 1953. I don't, I don't understand the, the, the fascination with question mark. It's a question mark. I guess it's you know everyone has a lot of questions about this, so let's put a question mark so we they know that their question will be answered by watching this. That no, that that that's the title you just gave is basically just he or she question mark with names. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> it's just, I don't. You should have picked behind locked doors, honestly. Uh, uh, the film stars Ed Wood in the movie as the titular role of Glenn, a man who has an alter ego of Glenda, of who he cross dresses into. And is also trying to hide from his fiance Barbara, who was played by his real-life girlfriend, Dolores Fuller. Uh, Wood also had the opportunity to work with several people who would come to star in future Wood works, such as Lyle Talbot, Timothy Farrell, Conrad Brooks, and even his idol, Bella Lugosi, who serves as the somewhat villainous narrative of the scientist. Uh, the plot follows the mentioned above loosely, as Glenn struggles with telling Barbara of his true identity before their uh, date of marriage. Such struggles bear fruit with legitimate thematics of prejudice across, uh, prejudice against crossdressers, as well as personification of Wood's personal struggles with crossdressing. Uh, a famously cut scene shows a man berating the advances of a homosexual man, before then turning to light the cigarette of a crossdressing man. So, Mike, you hit it on the head earlier, where it's, uh, these anti-homosexual people often have closeted homosexual tendencies as what this scene that was cut from some releases of the film was trying to show. Wow. It, the, the irony that it was cut because it opens up the doors. Once people start to see, once people start to question something like that, then it opens up the doors and the people who maintain that hate, maintain that, I, I guess, not power struggle, they, they kept you know putting these people under. Yep, I'm pretty sure they didn't come out right, but you guys know what I mean. Yeah, I got it. Uh, the layout of the plot continues forward. The film begins with Bella Lugosi as the scientist spitting some straight heat. <laughs> talking about philosophical ideas such as the connection between life and death 
and the similarities between all humans. There's a the the famous part of this scene is a baby crying and Lugosi remarking that this marks the beginning of life to an ambulance noise in the background marking the the end of a life. Uh the ambulance noise is revealed to be heading towards the scene of a dead cross-dressing man who has committed suicide. His suicide his suicide note indicates to the audience that he cannot take the constant threats he has been receiving for cross-dressing the way he does in public to that point four times and has decided to end it all instead. He writes, quote, Let my body rest in death forever in the things that I cannot wear in life. He was, he was found in his uh, getup. Which is actually a deeper sentiment than I expected going into this. Yeah, they, they, I, I feel like this movie has a lot of potential so far from what you've told us. Yeah, I agree. It definitely has a lot of potential. So what part does it fall off a cliff? Uh, well, let's move forward. The inspector, who is confused about what this means, consults a local psychologist, who then retells him the story of Glenn, a boy through, who throughout childhood had shown habits of dressing in women's clothes, such as wearing his sister's dresses for Halloween and such. But he continued doing it regularly, not on special occasions such as Halloween. And when she had found out that he was doing it, began to shun him for it. And I'm pretty sure she shunned him forever after that. The film also makes it clear to assert that although Glenn is a crossdresser, he is not a homosexual. And maintains an otherwise healthy relationship with Barbara, his fiance, outside of the fact that he's hiding his crossdressing from her. This, of course, mimics Wood's actual life as he was dating the actress who was playing Barbara, Dolores, at the time of production. And he was a famous crossdresser at the time. The film explores the trials and tribulations that come with Glenn attempting to face his fear, with a small subplot of Barbara also suspecting Glenn of cheating on her with another woman, when that woman is, in fact, Glenda, his alter ego. And this is where it starts to fall off a cliff. This is the part we've all been waiting for. Let's hear it. Beyond this point, however, the film sort of descends into a stream-of-consciousness, multi-genre, well, mess. Uh, some of the themes are still somewhat present, such as a scene with the devil condemning Glenn's dream about him and Barbara getting married as damned. The devil? The devil. He's, he's standing there. <laughs> <laughs> so this serious movie, quote unquote, about, you know, this, this life, this, this, you know, you know, this serious moment. And then the devil pops up in just literally in the flesh, Satan himself. Shout out New Jersey Devils. I mean, he's right here in front of him. It's just this break of seriousness. I, no, I, I expect let, nothing less. Let, let me continue. That's hardly the worst. Oh, part. no. Oh, no. Uh, there is also a separate cutaway conversation of two men talking about how society should be more lenient on its views of sexuality. So, so it's, like, it's like a family guy cutaway gag. Right? It's like generic stock footage of like factory work. There's no people in it. It's two guys over-voicing a conversation about how people should be more lenient about sexuality. It has nothing to do with the plot at all. It's just in there for some reason. The continuity is just on point with this, with this filmmaker right here. Uh, beyond this point, uh, the film sort of jumbles together as some scenes watch as sort of a 50s-style educational short film where there's certain scenes where Glenn is Glenda, and the narrator is like, 
This man is a crossdresser. Oh my gosh. A transvestite of who enjoys women's clothes more than men's clothes. You know, that kind of shtick. This is the type you show in high school to 50s high school students. To acid dream, acid trip dreamlike sequences where it's hard to tell exactly what's going on. Uh, Lugosi, as the scientist, has one of my favorite quotes of the movie, which serves as the introduction to the larger dream sequence of the movie, which is where the acid trip begins. Quote, Beware, beware, beware of the big green dragon that sits on your doorstep. <laughs> he eats little boys, puppy dog tails, and big fat snails. Take care, beware. Bars. <laughs> Tony, like, what is going on? What does that mean? I, I, huh? What? Uh, yes, that's beautiful. That's art. That is art, right? That's bars. I do agree. That is some bars, but. But that just where does that fit? Where does this all fit in the movie? Well, well that's the intro to the to the dreamlike sequence, which goes on for like twenty minutes. Why? I don't know. It goes on. The movie is an hour and ten minutes long. There's a link on YouTube to it, so you can go and watch it at your leisure. Uh, but it it's an hour and ten minutes, and the dream sequence takes up like twenty twenty five minutes of it. Like it's that big of a part. Uh, this is. I mean. What was the idea of making this movie? Like, we need to have a 20-minute dream sequence in this movie. What, why? Don't don't worry about it. It's key to the plot. It's Big Green Dragon. They're going to love it. Let's do and it. What makes it worse is the premise at first was very serious. Oh, the life of a man who cross-dresses, right? And then they, the, the other director just completely shitted on that and decided, how do I make trash? Yeah, that's literally what he did. Like, Weiss is the one trying to make a quick buck, so I imagine it's him <laughs> throwing all this bullshit in there. Uh, and Wood has some actual, like, themes of cross-dressing, at least in the beginning. But it, it keeps going. Consider this is 20 minutes long, so. Uh, the movie, from this point, descends further into madness, and you can kind of begin to see where the exploitation on, on uh, Weiss begins and it starts to overshadow Wood's legitimate Im imagery. Uh the dream sequence has so many things wrong with it, but I'll just give you the highlights. Uh it has a scene of a woman being whipped BDSM style by a shirtless man. It has uh, a woman strip teasing, like ripping off her dress and just like just trying to seduce the audience, I guess. Uh, a man attempting to rape an unconscious woman, but after, like, a minute, she ends up liking it. <laughs> Not Bro? touching that one with a 10-foot stick. <laughs> and <laughs> the best part is that throughout all of this, they're, it, they're spliced in the, like, reaction images of, like, Glenn, the devil, the scientist, and Barbara. But it's the same shot every time. <laughs> so, like, Strip tease. Glenn's sitting there like, and then the whipping, and then Glenn's in there like, <laughs> it's the same shot. It's the same shot several times over, and I, I'm just like, it ruined the scene for me because I'm just laughing every time. <laughs> it wasn't already ruined no. at that point. <laughs> no, at that point I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm kind of into it. <laughs> and then there's the like reaction image scene, reaction image scene, and it's the 
same one of the scientist or Glenn. And I'm like, please. Was it zoomed in too? Or like it was just their. No, it's the same shot. Wait, wait. Did you say the devil was reacting? The devil, the devil, like starts talking to the camera at one point. It's, it's just so hard to follow. I can't even like describe it in full. You have to watch it to get it. <laughs> like, I don't know what was going on. It feels like two movies we're talking. This is two different movies. I don't care. I, this is not the same movie. It can't be. Bro, this shit, this shit reminds me of the cat in the hat, bro. Huh? Like, you would think the movie is like some lighthearted shit, and then it just goes into that. Well, I, I, the way I just, I, the way I wrote down how to describe it is like, have you seen a uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Yes. Okay, so you know the scene where the knight is running to the castle, about to charge on it. The guy in Lancelot, hey. I think. Oh my god! No, and, I- then, <laughs> and then the guards are sitting there like, and he's running. Yeah. That it's like that, but unironic. He's running, and then he's running again. And wait, he's like thirty feet back, but he's still running. Now he's running, but you're laughing. It's unironic. It's funny. That movie is amazing. If you, I would much rather watch that movie right now than whatever this movie was. But Monty Python, Holy Grail, classic. Love to see it. But yes, that's wow. <laughs> that's a good picture. Now, uh, I think I wrote down what I thought this scene was trying to convey. And I think what it's trying to convey is that all people have their kinks of sorts. And a lot of people sort of, like, demonize themselves for having it. That's why the devil is so prevalent throughout all this. I think that's what he's trying to say. But altogether, this is just so surreal and hard to follow. It's so hard to just get a, get a good read on it at all. And that's, that's my best attempt I have at yeah, Like, I'm not going to be sitting there watching a, a just dream sequence with a dragon and all these weird things going on and sit there and be like, Hmm, there's a serious meaning to all of this, and it's about uh, society in a way. I'm just gonna be sitting there like, what did I just watch? Why does this exist? I don't know, man. It's so good right now. It's so like, uh, just imagine the whole like LGBTQ community at the time expecting some masterpiece to help shift the tide of like how people viewed them, and then nope that nope none whatsoever uh i'm not sure how much this movie impacted the the transgender cross-dressing community because uh a lot of articles state that edward's films had very limited theatrical release probably because it wasn't that good so he never it never really reached that wide of an audience so i don't think it had much impact but like looking at it as just a microcosm for other things, I think would help to give it some sort of like, this is what I think he was going for kind of thing. Definitely. Uh, but in the words of a supporter of the film, Edward Wednesday writer Joe Blevins, supporters, uh, yeah, supporters. Someone, someone watched that and said this was good. Yeah, it's this is this is where I've been getting most of my information from. This guy's uh, writing up on Edward. He's a this guy who wrote the blog post, he's a huge Ed Wood fan. He has, like, all his movies on DVD and everything. So, so this is what he thinks about it. Quote, I will not mince words here. Glenn or Glenda is unequivocally my favorite Ed Wood movie. It's the film that made me a lifetime, lifelong fan. I had never seen anything like it before and have not seen anything like it since. Which is accurate. Uh, 
Most of Ed's movies, odd as they are, fall into pretty easily recognizable categories, some of which we'll examine later on. Science fiction, horror, western, crime, thril- crime thriller, pornography, etc. Glenda is something different altogether. Part horror, Lugosi appears as a Dracula-esque mad scientist. Part documentary, <laughs> the two people talking over the factory images. <laughs> uh, part soap opera, where it's Glenn and his girlfriend Barbara talking. They're really set up like a soap opera. Uh, part stream of consciousness surrealism, which is just the entire thing. There's also a scene of a buffalo stampede for some reason. I don't know why. It's just there. It's there. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying. This guy is reaching so hard to be like, this was art. This was, this was a direct choice to make this a soap opera, horror, comedy, buffalo stampede documentary. I mean, what the heck is wrong with this guy? Yeah, the buffalo stampede. Throughout a lot of these, like, sequences, Lugosi is also, like, narrating over it, saying, like, cryptic things over it. And it's kind of, it's just, it's really hard to follow and make out because you're just so numbed to like what's going on at that point. And honestly, I'm glad that guy has all the support for him because like, honestly, it couldn't be me. I couldn't support this guy. Oh, like his whole biography, his whole disc- discography, whatever the fuck it's called. Well, I mean, it's not even really Wood's fault. It's Weiss's fault because he's taking the reins on this one. Like what would... I feel like did what he could where he could. But Weiss, like, like, considered his intentions. He came in with the intention of capitalizing on the Jorgensen scandal. And that's exactly what he's trying to do. But he's also a B and Z movie extraordinaire. Like, that's all he does. So he's going to throw that bullshit into it <laughs> as well. And I feel like, as you'll come to see, uh, he had a lot of an impact on Wood's filmmaking and tendencies. Because uh, Woods made a lot of movies. A lot of movies. Uh, but that, that's, uh, that's Glenn or Glenda. His first feature film. Yeah, how, how do you guys think in terms of a first step? Well, it's a step in the wrong direction. Uh, I, I mean, it's, you know, having that, having that clash between two people trying to make a story then having it be complete polar opposite uh, with, with any way you could think. It's hard to make an actual good movie when you do that. I think if they stayed on one track, it would have been a little better. But um, I'm gonna give that movie about a, a one out of one out of a million. Uh, that thing sucks. I didn't even watch it, but I I don't think I want to. Oh, yeah. oh, you're gonna watch it? Oh no. Okay, fine. I'll watch it. Why not? And the reason I bring that up is because of the following. Oh boy. Uh, so this movie is considered to be one of the worst of all time, uh, which I think personally is up for debate because. Because if a movie is entertaining, even in the slightest bit, even due to how bad you think the movie is, can it truly be considered the worst movie you've ever seen? Like, consider The Room. Like, The Room is bad. But is it the worst of all time? Yeah, what, what's the scale for a bad movie? Is it unwatchability? Is it the worst plot ever? That's why you gotta separate into categories. I think, personally, the worst movies are the most boring movies. Fair. Because you can't even make fun of a boring movie because there's nothing to make fun of. It's just numbing, dry acting, unsatisfying plot points, just boringness. But if a movie's bad, you can pick on it. And at that point, if you're the director, 
to some degree, all you care about is eyes on the screen in the end. Yeah, if you're not worried about the art of it all, the art of filmmaking, uh, yeah, you just want to be, you just want to sell tickets and have people watch your movie. Absolutely. But it isn't even considered the worst of Ed Wood's discography. Mention, remember how I mentioned earlier that he has the worst film of all time? That was not it. That is not the film that took that spot. It wasn't even the runner-up. Wait, 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 wait. So this wasn't even in the top two of his own worst movies. No, I, I think people consider that his second worst, but it's not the worst. If we're talking strictly feature films, it's his. It's what people consider probably his second worst. Oh my gosh, then how low is the bar for the first? Let's see it. Just get into it, man. Well, uh, I think it is also important to note that Wood wasn't even the main, ha- main man behind the scenes for this one, because it's his first feature film, but he going forward, he's going to be the main guy. Uh, but like I said, this it's not even the worst of Wood's catalog. Uh, but we will be examining that movie as well as Wood's other films and projects in the next part. Oh, what a guy! Two parter, baby. Maybe in a three parter. Who knows? <laughs> Let's just make this the entire podcast going into this guy's filmography. <laughs> Dude, Joe Blevins got that covered. That's true. That's true. He's got the block. He's got the block. Yeah. But that's going to do it for the first episode. We got his introduction, and we got his first feature film, Glenn or Glinda. And I feel like the second episode's got, definitely going to be longer than this one, because there's a lot of feature films to cover, including probably the worst of all time. As the Golden Turkey Awards have asserted, we could, we're probably going to get to that. Maybe not uh the first or the second even it'll probably be in the second episode but we might have to push it to a third episode if if we go that in depth as we did this time because we're hit we're hitting like a little over an hour right now and if we kept going it would be like three hours long yeah you know here's the thing the whole idea of this podcast is that me and mike uh have no idea what's going on i i I had no idea that this was going to be a two-part episode so here we go and even or even a three-parter even a three-parter but that's the thing. I want you guys to watch Glenn or Glenda now. Just our reaction. Yeah, just well, just our thoughts on it. Uh, so for right now, what are you guys thinking of Wood? What do you, what what direction do you think he was gonna go? I know I listed some categories earlier. We got we definitely covered the. I don't even know a category that film drops under because it's kind of all over the place. But we got science fiction, crime thriller, documentary, pornography. <laughs> No, that sounds like my type of... I mean, um... Okay. Then go watch it, Mike. Go watch it. <laughs> no, but seriously, I this man could have made some bangers with, like, some of the ideas he probably had, and then just, I don't know, what happened. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, for this film, I feel like it kind of got mucked up. Like, not even... It's not even the thematics of it all. Some of the camera shots were really weird, where it's like, people were sitting too far away. They're very static. Like, it's a... It's a dude talking to a chair like this, arms crossed, just chilling. But the camera's really far away, and the audio like is kind of jumbled in parts and not synced in others. You know, it, it's a, it's honestly a kind of train wreck you would expect from a Z movie, as we've established. I'm ready. Oh yeah, we're definitely gonna get more into several more of those films. <laughs> uh, but like I said, Wood does have a very 
adamantly positive backing for some people. Some people enjoy his films so much to the degree where it's become enjoyable again. And I feel like at that point, you're successful because you've solidified your legacy. Because he's the worst director of all time, according to, according to the Golden Turkey Awards. And he has the worst film of all time, which we will go into. It's an impressive feat. So, yeah, it is an impressive feat. It's the Owen 16 Browns. Owen 16 Lions, Owen 22 Tampa Bay Bucks. And we talk about the Owen 16 Browns, Owen 16 Lions. Every time we see a team with about that goes at least like Owen 6, we start saying, like, hey, maybe they'll be like this guy. And now when we're watching a horrendously awful film, we'll say, hey, is this going to be able to contend? With with the film with Glenn or Glenda, is it possible? And then we're like, no, it just does. There's nothing that can contend with this. Cooch, please. It's Glenn or Glenda? Question. Question mark. mark. Oh yeah, you gotta throw in the question. Glenn or Glenda? Question mark. Question mark. What makes it worse too is imagine being an A list actor, right? And you're like, oh, this small, you know, this small director. Let me do a small film, and then you get that. How would you react, bro? Well, Bela Lugosi, Dracula is a very famous film, and he was the titular Dracula, and he's kind of he's kind of got Harry Potter syndrome, where it's like, at, whenever you see him in something, it's like, oh, look, it's Dracula, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So it's it's not like Scrubs he's pulling out here. Like, the one from his uh, short film, The Sun is Setting, she went on to play Lois Lane in The Adventure of Superman. So he's not, not everyone in this production is a scrub. Yeah. So, but like something, just something about him just makes his films that way. And I think you'll come to see that because like, I don't know. I don't know if you've seen the docu, the biopic, it stars Johnny Depp in it as Ed Wood. It's a very, he's a very, very interesting character. And an interesting character is definitely what we've needed (laughs) considering the last couple episodes. Most definitely. Yeah, the way you guys talk about the last episode, I feel like it was just somber and quiet this whole time. It wasn't quiet. It wasn't. It was just kind of ridiculously terrible. Well, the story itself was it was uh dep- it was it was a depressing episode. It was a depressing episode. I it got powerful at some point, I think, if it, if you want to use that word, but uh yeah, obviously Mike has not heard it yet. It's not dropped as the time of this recording. So that there's also that, but um it was it was just it was one that'll uh hit you right in the chest you know it's one of those this one's will <laughs> make you laugh but it's just the polar opposite uh, from the last one yeah we needed some giggles all right uh i think that's gonna be it from us you guys got some last thoughts on what you're looking forward to with uh <laughs> watching glenn or glenda or whatever come next after it looking forward is a interesting way to put it i'm afraid of what this man has put together i have no idea what this man has put together but i'm afraid to watch his films i'm afraid to look at what he's done um but it's gonna be funny i know that much it's gonna make for a good show so uh i am reluctantly ready to say honestly if i ever make a movie i'm gonna make sure i put a question mark in the title <laughs> just yeah I, I and that was honestly just like the fad of the 50s like a lot of films had punctuation in it I don't know because it, honestly, it's probably because it looked better on posters, because that that was the main like spread of media during the time. A big part of that was posters and ads taken out in like newspapers, magazines, such as that, and big bold letters and exclamation mark pop. And I guess question marks do too to a certain degree. Probably not as much as an exclamation point. 
but uh, I think you'll come to see that uh, in his next films. That's going to do it for us on Just Why. Hope you enjoyed the listen, and we will see you and Ed Wood next time.